Hello and welcome to the EdSurge podcast, where every week we look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young. I'm an editor and a reporter here at EdSurge, a nonprofit national newsroom covering change in education. People who happen to be good at school and at college are often described as smart. And our systems tend to reward them with cultural status and better jobs. But what if the key to expanding educational access comes down to rethinking our concept of smarts and who has them? That's the argument made by academic and author Freddie DeBoer in his book, The Cult of Smart, How Our Broken Educational System Perpetuates Social Injustice. DeBoer has taught in both K-12 and college settings, and he has served as an academic assessment manager at a college. These days, he's often weighing in on education policy issues in his personal newsletter on Substack. He argues that public discussions of education too often center on what he sees as a crisis narrative, that schools in America are failing, losing pace with those in other nations, and need significant reform. But he says these days schools and colleges are being asked to do things they were never designed for, to somehow prepare everyone for an academic track that they might not have an interest or ability to excel in. And he says that this push coincided with a decline in manufacturing jobs in the U.S. and other options to obtain a middle-class wage without a college degree, putting more pressure on the education system. The author has some ideas, big and small, for how to move to a system that better rewards different types of intelligences and abilities. I connected with DeBoer recently by Zoom from his home office, and you can hear the sound of neighboring kids playing outside his window at some point. I started by asking Freddie DeBoer what he thinks is wrong with the way people tend to talk about smarts in education. The way that I would frame it is um, it would not disturb us to hear a parent describe their child as not having a facility in the visual arts, not having the artistic touch. It would not disturb us to have a parent say of their child that they don't have an ear for music. It would not disturb us to hear a parent say of a child that they uh, are not good at sports. Um, It would, however, uh, disturb, it tends to disturb people very much if they say that they think that their child is not smart, right? In other words, that um, there are all kinds of ways to be a useful human being that we recognize. And we also recognize broadly that, um, that there are skills some people just don't have, and that's typically um, uncontroversial and doesn't invite a lot of consternation. However, uh, when it comes to smart, right, uh, that is taken to be something that is existential, that is totalizing, that um, encapsulates an entire individual. Uh, and, uh, my book, it was an effort to ask why that's the case, um, to argue that the need to turn everyone into, um, what used to be quite a rare thing, which was someone who acquires the kind of skills that are, make it possible for them to go to, uh, college and from college to go on to be a member of the professional managerial class. Um, why we have now made that a one-size-fits-all approach to schooling. Um, and I, as I suggest in the book, I think the, there are historical roots to, to why that happened, but I think that is quite destructive. And we are essentially shambling along now with a, an economy where 
more and more often you hear people criticizing college and saying that not everyone should go to college, but we still do not fundamentally have a model for what people should do if they don't go to college. And a lot of those things were the things that sort of were germinating uh, when I thought of the book. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, it's really interesting. So in other words, this just going by this, like you're smart if you fit into this college pattern or the, the, the skills that get you, you know, success in the academic realm yet, you know, there are other kind. you know, that that's not the only way to be in the world. Um, and, and so that's interesting you say, cause there's certainly all this, these talks in the education kind of innovation circles these days about skills-based hiring and trying to understand the, you know, the learner without just the college degree. It sounds like you might agree with them on that, but how do you, you know, what, what are, but there's, there's also the, the concern about some of the skills-based hiring and that it's so focused on what an employee, some individual employer might want and doesn't get at the teaching people in a more broad-based way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I would say first, like, I am a big fan of unbundling. So the notion of unbundling the degree to discrete skills that people can um, receive some kind of license or some sort of certification of assessment that demonstrates that um, they have certain sets of skills which um, are bundled together, or at least an expectation of what's bundled into a college degree and into a major. Um, I'm a big fan of the idea of unbundling, um, among other things, because such a large portion of students who start college never finish. If we unbundled, we could at least say, okay, you were going to earn this badge or this certification or this training uh, in your first year, and then this one in your second year, etc. And... uh, uh, people who dropped out could still walk around carrying at least some kind of uh, value-bearing credential um, from their time at college, which at present does not happen. I mean, the, you know, the two status words in education are some college, because what you have are people who took on student loan debt or otherwise uh, lost out on opportunity costs when they could have been working when they went to school and have nothing to show for it that financially is val- valuable for them. Um, and also, um, you know, there's a lot of those people. I mean, um, you know, the median voter is someone with some college, uh, and no degree if you balance it all out on both sides. So it's, it's not like this is a small uh, population. Uh, I do think, as you alluded to, that we want to be very careful about trying to predict the, uh, labor market. So, the, the paradox and the difficulty to me lies in preparing people for careers um, while understanding that labor market trends move very quickly sometimes in a way that can make us look very foolish. So um, there was a period of time when petrochemical engineering looked like an extremely safe haven um, because oil prices had gone quite high and there was a fracking boom. Um, unfortunately, to get trained in petrochemical engineering to the degree that anyone would want to hire you for one of the high-paying jobs, you would have to have at least a master's degree. Um, and what happened was that um, the price of oil uh, <coughs> collapsed. This is pre-pandemic, so um, the, the price of oil collapsed, and all of a sudden, what looked fi- financially viable to a lot of people stopped looking financially viable. Now, you can say, hey, the price of gas is back up, but that just better underlines the fact that these are con- conditions that people can't control. There's also the, the cautionary tale of um, when uh, a, a 
particular academic field is said to lead to a particular job and that that job is a safe haven, well, the, the, the problem is, is that you can end up producing too many workers for scarce jobs. And so um, this must have been at least a decade ago now. But uh, the New, New Republic published this big investigation into pharmacy um, uh, in the uh, 2010s at some point. And uh, in that investigation, they found that um, uh, almost 100 new schools of pharmacy had been founded in the United States over the course of a decade and a half. So not just one or two or three or four new programs, but um, dozens and dozens of new programs in pharmacy. Um, because there was a perception that there was a pharmacy, a, pharma, a pharmacist uh, uh, dearth, that there was a, uh, a need for more, more pharmacists. and Sure, a gap, a gap in the employment. A gap, yeah. exactly, yeah. yeah. And despite the, the constant complaints about students studying French uh, poetry or whatever, I find undergraduate students are often extremely practical and often are, are, are quite uh, career-oriented. So anyway... Those pharmacy schools started cranking out a whole new generation of pharmacists. Uh, the problem was is that when they graduated, they were graduating together, right? So the uh, market became flooded with new graduates, and what looked like a soft landing was less soft. Now, all things being equal, if you're just going to pick randomly, you know, uh, would, I, would I prefer to be a... Uh, a trained pharmacist or not. Sure, it's not, I'm not saying that it's a bad thing to be a trained pharmacist, but the very act of identifying a gap and trying to fill it created such a glut of graduates that it hurt the performance of all of them on the job market. So I'm not a fan of trying to predict what the, the market is going to bear. It's also important to say that uh, for people have really bad perceptions about what the growth industries are. If you ask people what the biggest, the, the far, fastest growing sector of the economy is, they very often will say STEM, but that's not true. It's not even particularly close to true. It's service industry. Many of those service industry jobs are low pay and uh, low prestige. In um, heel jobs, um, what Richard Reeves, the uh, Brookings Institute fellow, calls heel jobs, which is health, education, uh, administrative and literacy, there's three times as many uh, uh, job openings for that today than there are for STEM jobs. And so we have to be careful about thinking that we're Nostradamus and can predict what's going to come next. And we have to train students to be uh, limber and to be adaptable to changing labor market conditions. But I don't think that that's incompatible with training them with a career orientation. Now, we did a podcast series um, earlier this year on that was called Bootstraps, which looked at the kind of myths and around the meritocracy and, and how people think about, you know, um, the American dream and opportunity, especially as it relates to education. And it struck me, your book, um, that you really have a lot to say about this as well and wish I'd found you for for that series, but we are still on, you know, covering those themes. And and you, you seem to have a... Um, a concern that that there's this sense of you know smarts um as we were talking about before that also it you know sort of that sort of slots certain people into these you know desirable education opportunities and therefore like and then after that big careers and we think that it's it's based on merit but but that there there's a growing skepticism that and I thought you had a sort of an interesting unique take on on what the um you know, what some of the problems with that narrative are, really. 
I mean, I would start uh, with the beginning and sort of say, like, um, we should never moralize that which is contingent on history in terms of um, what is viable in the marketplace, right? In other words, um, so to begin with, being a physically strapping and strong person with physical endurance is something that not that long ago was something that could make you a big man in your tribe or village or a town or etc. Right. In other words, the value of physical exertion and the ability to work uh, with strength and with endurance uh, is something that was once highly prized uh, and and rewarded in local economies, which is now, unless you're one of the very lucky few who can be a physical, can be a professional athlete, um, uh, is now not associated with good wages or good, with a strong labor market at all, right? Because it's fungible and it's always at risk of being emplaced by automation. Um, if you're someone who is born to be a big strapping guy, but you're also someone who's born like so many young men are, um, with a real difficulty in sitting down and staying on task. If you have trouble following along in school, as so many young men and young women, but particularly young men, uh, do. If you have trouble with um, uh, delaying gratification, etc., but you're physically big and strapping, it's only an accident of history that you've been born in a time in which that's a bad combination rather than a good one, right? So the, the first thing to do is to demoralize all of this, right? You know, we all have our own sets of skills and strengths. I am reminded of my limitations every single day. Um, and, uh, and they assert themselves in my life. But I try to remind myself that I'm not fully in control of what I'm good or bad at and to just make the best choices that I can. Um, I think that uh, when we talk about our conception of uh, value, we have to put it in sort of a social, political, uh, historical context. So um, <clears throat> there used to be a mass uh, way for uneducated people, particularly men, again, um, to earn a middle-class income for themselves and their families, right? So this was the famous sort of factory-at-the-edge-of-town job in industry or manufacturing. These are the jobs that Bruce Springsteen has sung a thousand songs about, right? Um, in, in my hometown, Pratt & Whitney makes engines for jet planes. And that was for my, uh, you know, my parents' generation. Uh, that was the job that you went to at the edge of town if you didn't have any other prospects. And you could start out as an 18-year-old and you could get a good union job on uh, <coughs> the work floor um, and support a family. What town is this? A Middletown, Connecticut. Um, but there's towns like that throughout the United States, right? Sure. Um, that has largely disappeared. Um, I mean, it's maybe the biggest macroeconomic story for the United States over the past 50 years has been the demise of um, uneducated labor that brings with it a living a wage, a, a middle class income. Um, it's important to say that this was uh, the result of first of automation. So we got better at figuring out how to replace workers with machinery. But controversially, there's also the question of offshoring, so sending jobs to uh, Mexico, China, Bangladesh, uh, etc. One way or the other, 
um, while we still produce a lot of stuff in the United States, the number of people, the percentage of people employed in manufacturing in an industry in the United States is a tiny fraction of what it once was. Um, at the exact same time that that period is ramping up to its fullest height, we have the beginning of the crisis narrative in American education. So the crisis narrative is the idea that American education is uniquely awful, that it is leaving us behind for a long time. The specific claim, the specific worry was that um, we were falling behind the Russians because of our educational problems. A key text in this, it was called A Nation at Risk, which was a Ronald Reagan era um, uh, policy paper that um, really in, said that we were uh, falling behind and needed to invest greatly in education in order to uh, succeed. It's no coincidence that at the exact same time as the factory at the edge of town was being dismantled, right, and as the way of life where you could be a middle-class worker without a college degree, was, as that was being dismantled, we put immense pressure on our education system. Right, because once you got rid of that stool of the of the of that leg of the stool of the economy, right, um, you had to replace it with something, and that's where the sort of cultural push to send everyone to college comes from. Um, it is in that era that it begins to become this cultural association, where um, even into the 1990s. Uh, it was not necessarily assumed that every bright young person was going to go to college, right? Um, it's hard to sort of put yourself in the mindset, but college was uh, a minority track, even for people who were considered academically successful um, a few decades ago. And so um, it's just not a coincidence that now we see going to college as being this rite of passage that um, almost anyone who has any desire to do something with their life does. Um, and so it, it, for me, it, you have you can't take it out of that context. You have to understand that we're pushing everyone into college for the same reason, which is uh, in order to build a new leg of the economy that we can stand on. The trouble is not everybody is meant for college. And you could probably also say that college isn't meant to serve everybody. Absolutely. So I say this all the time to people. Um, we have to remember... If you had gone back to the 1930s or 1940s and talked to a president of an Ivy League university and you said, um, hey, is the university, is your university, you know, providing uh, the next class of uh, young people with what they need to survive economically? Are you creating economic opportunity for, you know, big swaths of the, of the populace? They wouldn't know what you were talking about. Right? Because the purpose of college was not to create an army of workers who were equipped to be able to make middle class and above incomes. Right? In other words, um, you know, elite schools at least were founded to be explicitly uh, finishing schools for the elite. Right? They were to take the uh, most well-to-do people's uh, sons, you know, their white sons, uh, and to turn them into a new class of leaders, to give them a, lead a liberal arts education so that when they became politicians and they became masters of the universe, they would hopefully govern benevolently. Um, a earlier generation of college uh, people involved in college would just not have known what you were talking about if you had said the purpose of college is so that everyone can get a good job. 
And so we have to, similarly, by the way, it was the purpose of college was not to establish social justice, which is another sort of idea that is now sort of grafted onto colleges, but was not there immediately, the uh, beginning. And so um, we, we have to take care to say part of the reason why colleges are not fulfilling this role very well is because they weren't founded for this. Right. I mean, even, you know, a land grant universities, which were intended to be for um, uh, more people than just for the elite, like Purdue University, where I got my, my Ph.D., they tended to be. So Purdue was an agriculture school that was specifically about um, not training a generation of new workers, but of advancing the science of agriculture so that uh, the farmers who did not go to college could take advantage of um, of what was discovered. It was a military, uh, a, a big military prep school as well. So these schools have just sort of had this task sort of grafted onto them of, okay, you be the main supplier of opportunity in the economy. It's just not a very good fit. And again, because um, for issues, of, for reasons of both nature and nurture, right, not everybody is fit to go to college. I've known some very bright people in my life who wanted nothing to do with college and because it just wasn't for them because it's not how they work. It's not how their brain processes things. It's not where their skills lie. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of opportunity right now baked into the system for people like that. Yeah. And, and um, you know, I, I when, it, when I said the college is not for them, it does seem like or was not designed for them, as, as we both mentioned. But it does seem like there is an effort, especially when you look at there's many types of colleges, there's community colleges um, that have long had this mission. And then there are, I see traditional colleges doing more or saying they're trying to do more to serve more diversity of students in, in a lot of different directions. Um, and, and those who might have been, you know, who the system wasn't designed for in the past. But it sounds like you're saying, in a way, it sounds like you're saying that effort isn't isn't the best method in your view to try to make college broader. Um, what's wrong with that idea? You know, it's a, I mean, to just say like, okay, colleges don't serve everybody. Well, what if they did? What if they right. could? Okay. So, but it's like, um, I, I think that the fundamental thing to understand is, so when we talk about college as a means for opportunity, we're talking about the college wage premium, right? More than anything else. It's a college wage, wage premium and a premium in terms of unemployment rate. People in other words, are, if I have a college, if some, if anyone has a college degree, they're typically or they're statistically likely to make more over their career life than far more than a high school only graduate. Right, and even as 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 um, I believe that the you know the number that is thrown around a lot is that the median college graduate can expect to make about a million dollars over the course of the year more of the course of their life more than the median. Yeah. I see that million a lot. Yes. Yeah. As, uh, uh, who knows if that's, uh, you know, uh, a good step, but it, you know, there, it, there certainly seems to be a significant premium for going to college in terms of your wages that even as expensive as college has become, um, the amount that you make over the course of a lifetime, um, is significantly more than that. Um, but of course, for there to be a premium, there has to be a other group that does not enjoy the premium, right? And the problem is, is we know that the college pre wage premium is a function of the rarity of a college degree. And I'm not just like reasoning that from first principles. There's a paper from 2005 where the National Bureau of Economic Research, really important paper, they looked from... Uh, 
1890 to 2002 or something like that. It was the entirety of the 20th century, a little bit of the, of the 19th century, uh, and a little bit of the 21st. And um, they were looking at the college wage premium. And the idea of the paper was just, to what degree can we say that um, uh, the college wage premium is simply a matter of supply and demand. In other words, the number of people who have a college degree compared to the number of job openings that require a college degree. And what they found was that, in fact, um, and this is to a quote in their words, to a remarkable degree, um, the college wage premium just is the supply and demand function of a, of a college degree compared to jobs that need them. Right. Um, and so you begin to see the problem with send everybody to college then, because if supply and demand are at, at play and there's no way that they could not be, it's basic economics. If supply and demand are at play and you're saying we're going to cr create 100 percent supply, we're going to make the supply everybody, we're going to dramatically expand the supply so that everyone has a college degree, then the pr wage premium has to drop significantly for that to happen, right? I guess to play devil's advocate, if you believe that college does give you some, you know, call them skills, knowledge, you know, you co go, go out better than you came in as far as something uh, that you're getting. And, and we're, now there's so much entrepreneurism. I, I know people kind of might hear you and say like, well, people will go create their own things once they've got this education, once they've got these um, skills and abilities, then wow, this could be transformative. It seems like you're taking, I, I, I definitely see your economic argument, but I, what would you say to somebody that says like, well, you know, if, if we could get all these people like a huge number through college and then it would change, it would change the game and, and things would be better. I mean, I look, I am uh, a defender of the learning value of a college degree. But again, I just I think it's a, a question of the, the difference between a social value and a labor market value. Okay, because again, like, the, the boss is not paying me really based on how much I learn or know. The boss is paying me the wage that he thinks that I will accept in a competitive labor market in which he knows that there are other people um, who could potentially fill that role, right? In other words, the reason we saw a tightening of the labor market, which we're now trying to kill with uh, interest rates, but the reason why we saw a post-pandemic uh tightening of the labor market was because uh, the, the uh, well, for one thing, the pandemic killed a lot of people, um, and there was a lot of uh, people who needed to be replaced, etc. But because, the again, the supply and demand equation got more rosy for workers. And so, look, I if I could snap my fingers and make everyone go to college and not take on back-breaking uh, amounts of debt... Um, and simply to earn the skills, um, I think I would probably do that. He says that companies who are hiring employees look to the college degree as a marker of something they're not able to measure themselves. And that's basically to measure how, quote unquote, smart people are. I mean, so, so one thing that's important to say is I can never remember the name of the case. But there was a Supreme Court case that found that um, it, was, uh, un it was unconstitutional to give people an intelligence test as part of uh, a hiring process because of um, uh, uh, disparate impact on racial minorities. Um, one of the reasons that college became uh, more attractive to employers is that 
colleges were allowed to do intelligence testing, the SAT, the GPA, the various other factors, uh, proxies for intelligence or whatever else you want to call it. Um, uh, so the colleges essentially took on that screening process. And one of the things that a college degree tells you is this person at the very least can get their ass to class at least a few times a week, put their head down, bury themselves in the book, and do at least a minimal amount of effort to get through school. And so the problem is, number one, is, again, like the supply-demand function. But number two, we know some people are not going to have what it takes to get through school, right? And this is the other thing, which is that, you know, there's a real romance you know, and a refusal to ever say that there's anybody who can't get through school. But we know that colleges spend exorbitantly on re, uh, remediation uh, and still struggle to keep their, their students through um, to graduation. When I was in CUNY, um, there was enormous effort expended on um, trying to retain students because we needed the uh, tuition dollars to survive. Declining enrollments were a huge problem uh, financially for the for the colleges, um, and people were working very hard. And some students just could not get it together enough to get through school. And so I think that that's the other hard part. The harder part, I think, is um, getting real about the fact that not everybody wants to go to school, and that not everybody has the soft skills that they need to thrive in school. So, what do we do? How do we make for a better economy and how do we create more paths that don't necessarily entail trying to force us square pegs into round holes? So what do we do? What are what are some ways that um, could could get at these these problems other than the kind of status quo? Sure. So I mean the easiest answer is labor unions. Um, we know empirically that uh, unionized industries have better wages than uh, industries that are not unionized. We know that um, unionized industries have better benefits than those that are not heavily unionized. We know that uh, the union advantage is not like the college wage premium advantage in that more people in a labor union does not diminish the uh, capacity of the union. It does the exact opposite. That as more and more people in a particular field or working for a particular firm sign up for the uh, for the union, the more powerful the union becomes, and the better ability it has to negotiate for better wages. Um, <clears throat> collective bargaining is a very powerful tool because you know even if you're someone who is highly paid. Uh, within a given organization in a non-unionized field, in one of the professional managerial roles that most college graduates tend to go into. Um, you're negotiating alone, right? Um, even if you're hot shit, you still have to sit down and see what the what the employer will bear in terms of what your wage can be. Collective bargaining can make that much, much easier for people when they don't have to individually worry about the fungibility of their value to the company. Because you say, hey, if you work here, you have to get paid X dollars an hour. And I mean, that siphoning off of corporate profits to uh, workers that is something that labor unions do that is the, the the strategy writ large. I mean, look, the economy is vastly bigger than it was at the height of the Fortis Compromise, right? So when I talk about the Fortis Compromise, I mean, you know, there was a period of time when you had a lot of manufacturing and industrial jobs. Um, they were he heavily unionized. And because they were unionized in part, they were able to uh, hand out the good life. They were able to create middle-class incomes, et cetera. Um, but the... Uh, uh, 
at the height of that period, there's also you know high growth for corporations. The corporations were profitable, so they were happy. Even at the height of that, the economy was a tiny fraction of what it was now, right? The money is out there. The problem is that if you look at a graph of productivity over time, which goes up like this, right? Uh, and then you overlay uh, worker compensation over time, you find that the worker compensation line around about 1975 or so breaks off from the productivity line and flatlines, right? So we know what the problem is. The problem is, is that uh, uh, just too big of a pie is going to um, a small portion of, of the people, the 1% or whatever you want to call them, and to corporations. And so unions are one tool to do that. The other is with the muscular redistributive um, social state. I talk about ideas like um, universal basic income or a, a jobs guarantee, um, uh, sort of a, you know, very basic sort of lefty ideas about how to capture value that used to go be more heavily distributed to workers, which now is captured by corporations, and about repatriating that into uh, the supply. But that's the big picture answer to your question. Um, we know that there the money is out there, and there's more than enough of it sloshing around in the system so that corporations can be profitable and so that individuals can live middle-class existence. Um, the problem is, is that the percentages got bent so badly during the Reagan-Thatcherite era that um, there simply isn't enough for everyone to go around under the current system. And it, and it sounds like the reforms you're seeing in education, both at colleges and in K-12, are, are in your view not solving that problem or addressing that that piece of the the equation yeah but it's like not their fault right it's like asking a television repairman why he hasn't fixed the pool right it's like um that people are doing their best within the system but the best they can do is prepare someone to go to college right and we've already discussed the issues with that um look um again if you go back to the 1970s right we're collecting vastly less educational data back then than we are today, right? Um, almost no states had state standardized tests. Um, if you're a parent, you get a report card twice a year, you know? Um, your, if you're a high school student, your, your school might very well not even be, be keeping class rank, right? Um, <clears throat> there just wasn't the intense pressure to constantly be creating data that justifies, okay, this is... Um, uh, you know, the, the growth that we need at a time when, again, for the average worker, the economy was in better shape than it is now. I think this is important. Um, I just read this the other day. Most men today are making less than most men made in 1976, okay? Because uh, the number of people who have fallen out of the formal economy has grown so much because of stagnant wages and flatlining um uh, uh, pay increases for regular people. Most men today are making less than most men made in 1976. Um, and yet we had this earlier period of schooling when everybody wasn't constantly running around with their, like a chicken with their head cut off saying, reform, reform, we need reform. Why? Again, because there would be some significant percentage of the kids at your high school who just knew that school wasn't for them who just knew they didn't want to go to college. I mean, this is one of the things that compelled me to write the book was, you know, I've taught dozens of college classes um, at a bunch of different institutions, and just the number of my students who would just say straight up to me, I don't want to be here. And I would remind them, you know, college is, is voluntary. But, of course, their point was always that college is not actually voluntary, 
right? That for, for every practical purpose they have to go if they want to have a middle class or above income. So um, back in the 1970s, we knew where they could go, right? They could go work for Ford or they could go work for the Zenith Te Television Corporation or they could go work in the steel industry in Youngstown, Ohio, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, once that died, right? And again, all the pressure fell onto the education system. We have the birth of the crisis narrative. We have the uh, immense numbers of assessments and the constant uh, churn for data. We have heated political battles about charter schools and, and private school vouchers, etc. Where is all that pressure coming from? The pressure is coming from the fact that we don't have a viable model for people who, who are not college track. Right. And that can be because of they don't have the, the basic underlying ability to, to get through school or they don't have the temperament to want to get through school as many people don't. Yeah. Um, I wondered, you have been a, earlier in your career, a K-12 teacher yourself. Um, how did that? Long term sub. Yeah. Long term. Well, OK. Yeah. So how did how is your experience as a teacher in the college context and in that um, K-12 context shaped? your view of the system? So I, I've done it all pretty much. I, um, I worked for my hometown school district for a couple of years in my mid twenties. And um, so for example, I, you know, I worked with in a program for kids with uh, in a, uh, a school for um, it was a big program for kids with a severe emotional disturbance. And um, it was attached to a regular public school, but most of the kids were significantly segregated out. Sometimes they got integrated into their other classrooms to some degree if they were deemed to be um, a minimally a threat to themselves or to others, but most of them were threats to themselves, the constant self-harming, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, you know, I would sit with them and I would be at work, he's working in a pair, as a paraprofessional and I would sit there and I would, uh, uh, help them with their math or with their reading or whatever. And very often that they would struggle and struggle and struggle. Um, despite my efforts, the efforts of the classroom teacher herself, the uh, efforts of the literacy specialists who would come in, et cetera. Um, and what you would find is that those kids, there would be people would sort of understand. They would say, oh, okay, well, he can't, you know, there, there would be a, a sense of, okay, this kid can't get it done, but that's not necessarily a crisis because he's dealing with severe emotional disturbance, right? Or you see some similar things in special education. Um, you see uh, students who have some sort of cognitive or developmental disability and they'll have an individual education plan um, and there are things that they can't do. And people understand that and they say, okay, well, you know, this, this student has some sort of a, a cognitive or developmental disability, down syndrome or something, um, which is hindering their ability to do some of the skills their age group peers can do. And that's okay. Right. What I would think to myself is, okay, why is it that we have this built in sense that these kids, it's understandable if they can't always meet standard because of their extenuating circumstances. But what if there's a kid who just struggles, right? Like I, some, I mean, look, um, I failed at least one math or science class every year of high school, every semester I had in high school as a student. Um, and I'm someone who has a lot of the, the soft skills uh, that are necessary. I mean, I can do work. I can concentrate. I can sit at a desk and listen to lecture for a while. 
Um, but I still struggled terribly in science and math in high school uh, and in middle school. Um, because I'm someone who does not suffer from an emotional or a cognitive or a developmental disability, um, many people will see that as necessarily failure. But if we think that ability is distributed normally throughout the population in different tasks, right? If we think that there are, that there's always going to be, right, <clears throat> two thirds of kids who are between one sta standard deviation and zero standard deviations below the mean. Right. If we think that two thirds of the kids are going to fall into that part of the curve, right, and that there's also going to be a predictable number of students who fall more than one standard deviation below the mean, right? Um, how can we not have baked into our system the idea that some kids are not good at some things, right? And this, to me, intersects with the moral piece of all this because when I talk about the idea of um, accepting that some kids are not good at some things. People get very defensive and they sometimes accuse me of leaving students behind. And what I say to them is I wrote the whole book so as not to leave anyone behind, right? The whole book is an argument for how not to leave them behind. What people are being left behind right now by the college or bust system, because again, we have, I mean, it depends on who you ask, but something like one out of every two students who shows up to college to undergrad will never uh, graduate, right? Like one, like, our overall graduation rate is something like 50% or 60% as an upper bound, right? So right now in the system we have right now, we're already failing, right? Um, my intent is not to insult anyone and say, oh, you'll never be good at math. My intent is to say we should have a fuller sense of what it means to be a valuable human being. And if we do, then we don't have to insist that everyone has what it takes to do calculus because we know that's not true. You know, in, uh, uh, Andrew Hacker, an economist, wrote a book called The Math Myth uh, about how higher level math uh, was requirements were, were crippling a lot of students and keeping them from graduating unnecessarily. And his argument was that we don't need to teach everyone higher order math. Um, he found that, um, among other eye-popping statistics, in Arizona, two-thirds of students were failing their algebra requirement in high school. Two-thirds of students, right? And so, you know, you can continue to bash your head into the wall and say, we're going to sort of force these people into this procrastinian bed. Or you can acknowledge, okay, not everybody's good at everything. Let's expand our sense of what it means to be an educated and useful human being. Let's recognize that everyone has different uh, skills and abilities and things that they bring to the table, so not all of which are academic. And that's when you can lead to things like, okay, um, <clears throat> let's uh, ease uh, requirements so that not everyone has to attempt Algebra two. Right. Um, so that uh, and then you can also, in terms of a policy direction, again, go to unbundling, start to sort of pull these skills apart. Say rather than having one big degree that's going to say that you've been blessed in all these areas, let's identify what people are actually good, good at. Give them sort of some sort of badging or certificate program so we can put them on the job market and then they can say honestly to an employer, hey, I'm uh, uh conversant in X, Y, and Z. Here is it from my high school. Here I went to college for two years and I was able to get this badge and this badge and this certificate. And in, in that way, demonstrate what they're good at. Rather than you got to take organic chemistry and you got to take it again and again until you fail and you're paying for those credits. And every time you fail, the odds of your dropping out of college goes up and up and up.
if that makes sense. No, it does. I guess the one thing that struck me in, in your book that I, I can imagine others in the audience might have a reaction similarly is that there's a sense though, that, that, you know, you, as an educator, I think people want to, to believe that they can take, you know, any student and, and, you know, educate them and to bring them, um, at least a lot further along, right. Uh, with their time with them. And it, it's, it does, I do understand, like it does, it can seem like your argument is a kind of, well, some people just aren't going to be good at math. So just don't worry about t- I guess there is a, there, it seems like there is a little bit of a danger of like saying like, well, instead of improving education, we can just kind of sort people. Um, and that educators want to believe they can educate. Well, right? it, it's interesting though, because, you know, um, if you ask people about tracking, they hate it. Right. Um, now I would, I should say Oren, Oren Cass, who I think, I think he's an economist and he's a, a kind of right leaning, um, guy who does a lot of sociological research. Um, he argues that tracking is in fact not uh, controversial into society writ large, that it's a, it's, it's very controversial with a fairly small number of left leaning people, but that like the average parent doesn't have a problem with tracking anyway. Um, if I say to you, should, should education be all be one size fits all, right? Um, and should everyone, you know, be forced to do the same things? And should we not tailor the educational experience uh, for the individual, but rather force them through the same pipeline? Everybody says, "Oh no, we should education should not be one size fits all." But the what we call the one not what's one size fits all, you know, policy is tracking. Right? Tracking is a reflection of the fact that different individuals have different strengths and weaknesses. If you want to have individual, more individualized education plans, which I think that we should have because people vary a great deal in what they're good at, um, then that's something like tracking. And it doesn't have to be stigmatized. Um, You know, in Germany, uh, there is a, a tracking system that is quite popular and quite successful. It begins at about 12 years old, I think. And there is more of a sort of academic college path, and then there's more of a vocational career path. Um, it's not a. I'm I'm not a not an advocate of hard tracking, meaning that the parent can't change it. Okay, I'm an advocate of soft track tracking, meaning that if a parent really wants to move a child from one track to another, they should be able to do it. Um, but uh, in Germany, the system seems to work quite well. But there's a caveat, right? It, it works quite quite well. Not just in that um, the education numbers look good, and the people who in the vocational track go on to get jobs that are that they want to have. Um, it's also there. There doesn't appear to be a great deal of stigma on being on the vocational track. It's not like in Germany the vocational track students are seen as the stupid kids, right? There's a caveat. Um, Germany has a very powerful labor union movement. Right. And part of the reason why people can come off the vocational track and get high paying jobs um, where they enjoy a degree of career stability and job security, etc., is because of the labor unions. It's also a modern European social safety work uh, country where there's considerably more redistribution of wealth than in the United States. Right. So the tracking system works in concert with the kind of system I'm saying that we should build. It does. It does seem like it comes back to your argument being a very large political system change to fix education yeah. <laughs> as the way to fix education. I mean, well, I, I mean, look, I, in the book, I do try to like sort of divide up 
more sort of big time, like here's how I would completely rework society with more sort of small bore, here's policy that we might be able to work on right now. Um, I, you know, I do think that um, fundamentally, um, if you look at numbers like the numbers Andrew Hacker puts together in, in uh, the math myth, um, it's very hard to defend the idea that we should be forcing every student into algebra, right? Um, it's, uh, I mean, look, I got a PhD in which I did a lot of stuff with statistics. I, you know, my, my, my dissertation was fairly quantitative and, um, uh, you know, I, I got trained up to do a lot of, uh, frequentist statistics and regression analysis and ANOVA, whatever. I've never used algebra since I stepped foot off of a college campus, right? I mean, it just, I just don't ever use it. And I'm in like a, you know, uh, you you crunch numbers, but that's not, but not algebra, but not algebra. Right. Um, so, but a general easing of standards so that they're, which is presented not as a lack of rigor, but as creating different paths to graduation for different students who have different strengths, right? Not trying to force every kid to be, and you know, a, a student who will go to Stanford and then get a job as a as a coder at Google, right? Like, there is so much romanticism uh, in education about graduating students to sort of take on this high profile STEM path, etc. When we know that the vast majority of students are not going to be involved in that, and even the vast majority of college graduates um, are mostly going to be involved in sort of uh, low to mid-level administrative jobs that are mostly conducted via email, right, Uh, and which require a lot of managerialism, etc., right? Um, We don't need to be training everyone with the eye to they need to become the next Elon Musk. Right. Um, so unbundling. Right. Uh, pulling apart the different parts of a degree and saying we're going to be able to give you formal uh, certification that you've achieved a certain level of proficiency in this. Let them then go to the colleges. Let the colleges look at their transcripts. And one of the things on the transcripts will be what they've gotten their certifications in with the kind of skills or badges that they've that they've acquired and they can say, who's a good fit for what? Let them go to college and do the same. Unbundle the degree. You still hand out the diploma, and people can still take that seriously if it's interesting to them. But you can say, hey, look, this this student has completed an engineering track in which they took an introduction to engineering class, a uh, math for engineering class, and a practical applications class. And so they have a, a good degree. And then you can say, okay, hey, that will tell us this person can be a high school teacher in X, Y, and Z, whatever, right? Um, but letting people into and through the system is through more paths than possible than currently possible. And then with the ability to show to other people uh, what the skills they acquired within that system, that in and of itself would take immense amounts of pressure off of the system, I think. Well, I think we'll we'll leave it at that. I really appreciate the time. Um, it's it's probably gone over here, but thank you so much for for talking with me. Hey, I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Every week, we bring you conversations like this one. If you have thoughts on the issues we talked about this week, whether you agree or disagree with our guest, please share them in a voicemail to our new call-in number, 202-990-8525. Or you can just send an email to me at jeff at edsurge.com. 
We may even include your response in a future episode. This installment was written and produced by me, Jeff Young, and you can find me on Twitter, at J.R. Young. Music this episode by Komaku. Editing help by Becky Koenig. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening.